Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, the man behind the films collectively known as the Mimiverse. Are you there? Are you listening? I genuinely hope you are. I'd like to start off this month's audio cast with a small apology. If you listen very closely, you'll see that I have a cold, and therefore I may sound extra nasally, but at the same time it allows me to have this great extra low voice, which I will use to lull you into a sense of serenity, to hypnotize you, and make you want to become a contributor to Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter, the next film on my slate. As you know, this is the December 2015 episode of the AudioCast, our 14th in total. This month, I'm going to talk a little bit about the reaction to my revealing the title of my next film. I have a couple of new Amazon user reviews of my film, The Giant Spider, which to this day still still seems to be my most popular film. We have another bad joke from Dr. Bob Tesla from another universe. How exactly he's getting these to us, I'm not sure, but I'm not going to complain. And of course, we will have Chapter 10 of the Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy ongoing serial, written by the ever-talented Stephen D. Sullivan. So to begin, let's talk a little about Where Skeeto, Nazi Hunter. First, let me say I do not remember exactly how I came up with the Nazi Hunter angle. I know that Where Skeeto, as a creature, is something that I came up with many, many years ago because I distinctly remember talking about the idea at OzFest, which is an annual event in Omaha, Nebraska, that celebrates sci-fi and all things geeky. It's a sci-fi con. And I was a guest of honor during the first couple years of that event, and I remember telling superfan Mitch Obrecht, Mitch Obrecht is the king of the superfans, because he is one of the most supportive of all superfans of the Mimiverse, so much so to the point that he actually appears as the bartender Biki in Destination Outer Space. At OzFest in 2009, after releasing Terror from Beneath the Earth, we were screening it there, and I did a panel in which I was discussing the future of the Mimiverse, and the only person to show up was Mitch, Mr. Obrecht, my good friend. And we just sat in the panel room, he and I, and talked. And he asked what other ideas I have. At the time, I told him I had two ideas, and I wasn't sure which one I was going to do, if and when I was going to do either of them. And the funny thing is, the first idea I told him about was a giant spider movie. The second one was something called Were-Skeeto. And I described what a Were-Skeeto was. It's like a werewolf, but instead of a man-wolf, you turn into a man-mosquito creature. Like a mix of the fly and a werewolf with a touch of a vampire because mosquitoes need blood. Everyone knows that 
I did follow through on the giant spider movie. In fact, I'm guessing if you are listening to this, you're enough of a fan that you have seen the giant spider. Perhaps it may be the only Mimiverse film you have seen, and that is okay. But where Skeeto is an idea that's been floating around. And I believe I said this in the last podcast last month, and if I didn't, I'm going to say it now, either again or for the first time. I'm not sure. I was never satisfied with the idea of just a Where Skeeto movie. It felt too familiar as compared to the other monster films I've made. It's just a slight variation on something like The Monster of Phantom Lake, until a unique take on the idea hit me at some point in the last, say, 18 months. Nazi Hunter was added to the title, and somehow that makes it so much better. And I'm writing the script as we speak. Well, not as we speak right now, but during this same time frame that I'm recording this particular podcast. I am in the throes of writing the script, and I'm about 50 pages in, which means I have 25 to 30 left before the script is complete. What I like about it is, as I'm entering the second decade of my filmmaking career, I feel like I want to stretch my cinematic legs a little bit, while remaining firmly in my wheelhouse. And trying very hard to make a movie that is unlike the one I just made. I've always tried to do that. If you look at my films, a lot of times, thematically, they're never the same from year to year. For instance, take something like Cave Women on Mars. It's, at its core, a love story, and a science fiction one at that. The next film I made was Terror from Beneath the Earth, which is Earthbound, and about a monster in a cave and a father fighting to save his children. Right after that, you do a grand sci-fi epic, Destination Outer Space. And this is what I mean when I say I try to thematically mix things up. So the last film I made was Danny Johnson Saves the World, and if you have not seen it, I am disappointed in you. Not so disappointed that... I will stop talking to you. Never. I will never stop talking to you. But disappointed enough that if you could see me, you'd see the look on my face and instantly feel guilty. Danny Johnson Saves the World was the last film I made. It contained children and puppets and a a cheesy robot. The tone is decidedly lighter. It is, for all intents and purposes, a children's film and a holiday one, which I should remind you, it, it is a stealth Christmas movie. If you are inclined to watch holiday-based entertainment this time of year, I ask that you consider including Danny Johnson Saves the World in your list of movies you watch this time of year. Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter, as the script is coming together, is extremely dark, which, if you think about it, We're dealing with Nazis, quite literally some of the ugliest, most amoral villains you can throw into a film. We're dealing with medical experimentation against someone's will. We're dealing with a creature that lives by sucking blood. There is not much about that premise that can be light and happy. 
nor should it be. So the script is coming together, and it is quite dark. So dark, in fact, there was a passage I had to rewrite, because once I wrote it and I went back to it, I realized that it would not fit with my library. It was simply too violent. And I realized that the violence could stay if I simply rewrote it in a way to leave more to the imagination and present it more as a suggestion of what might be happening as opposed to blatantly showing it. And herein lies sometimes the challenge of making these kinds of films and striving for some sense of authenticity. I have to be very, very careful about what I show and what I do not show and what I say and do not say and what I have my character say or not say. All things considered, I think it actually made the scene better and more effective by hiding a lot of what was happening and leaving it up to you, the viewer, to figure it out. It's the Hitchcockian way. It's a very classic way of making movies that they don't do anymore. Subtlety is not a hallmark of modern filmmaking. This is going to be an interesting film, and I am actually very excited to start making it. The script should be done very soon. My plan is to have it finished in the next two weeks. So next time you hear from me, around New Year's Day 2016, I will have much more to say. In the meantime, if you have not yet contributed to the film, I would greatly appreciate it. Imagine yourself for a moment being a part of the Mimiverse, getting your name or your loved one's name, perhaps your spouse, your faithful pet, your business name, whatever you'd like. Imagine that on the silver screen, captured forever as part of the Mimiverse. And you'll receive my eternal gratitude. Consider contributing to the film so it may turn out as awesome as the script suggests it will be at wearskeeto.com, W-E-R-E-S-Q-U-I-T-O.com. We'll take you right to the contribution page. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance you like my movies and you would most likely enjoy seeing more. Well, this is your chance to make sure that happens and continues to happen. And if you can't, that's all right. I realize that times are tough, money is precious, and time is money. And we all need more time. However, if you can, and you want cool stuff, like your name in the movie, a one-of-a-kind frameable certificate with your name on it, certifying your participation, and uh, a copy of the movie when it's done, or or a ticket to the world premiere, which is going to be extra fun this year because it'll be later in the year. So who knows? Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the Mimiverse in the ways that you do. In other news... 2016 will be a very, very exciting year. First, on March 9th, we will be doing the 10th anniversary screening of The Monster of Phantom Lake, but this time in classic red-blue 3D. We're not sure exactly where the screening-slash-party will take place, but we hope to see you there, and we will keep reminding you that this is happening. 
We are in the process of putting that together. The 3D conversion is, is coming along nicely. We will also, should everything work out, have some extra f- special features on the 10th anniversary DVD release. And the party should be great fun. And we hope you can attend. That will be March 9th, 2016. The exact 10-year anniversary of the release of The Monster of Phantom Lake. And we hope to see you there. Now, if you were paying attention last month, you know that Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob is currently trapped in an alternate universe. Hopefully, he will return in time for one of the coolest events taking place next year, and that is the second annual Mimathon, which is a 24-hour marathon of Mimiverse and Mimiverse-related films and serials and other cool stuff in Columbus, Ohio at the Gateway Film Center, presented by Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob. I sincerely hope that Dr. Bob will be back from the alternate universe in which he is trapped. Uh, And if not, I think the event is going to happen anyway. It just won't be the same without him there. Perhaps his assistant, Nurse Feratu, will host the event if he is not available. But I sincerely hope he is. April 16th, 2016, starting at noon and running for a full 24 hours at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio, the Mimathon literally will be showing every single Mimiverse film. And The Bequeather, the Mimiverse-inspired film made by Justin Overlander. Justin Overlander, of course, has played several characters in the Mimiverse, including the Sheriff in Terror from Beneath the Earth, Ray in House of Ghosts. He also appeared as Jonathan in The Monster of Phantom Lake. He made this film a couple years ago called The Bequeather, which is a straight-up comedy, very much in the vein of Young Frankenstein, but with a Mimiverse sheen to it, and that will be screened as well. I will be there. Several actors and Mimiverse behind-the-scenes-sters will be there as well. We're going to bring out some monster costumes for people to, you know, check out and get their picture taken with. There will be exclusive merchandise and other fun stuff. Put it this way, you should go. Even if you don't live in Columbus, Ohio, it's going to be a very, very fun event. And a lot of people are going to be there. And if you make it through the night, if you watch, or at least sleep in the theater, as long as you stay in the theater for the entire 24 hours, there may be something very cool on the other side. But we are not revealing quite yet what that will be. But you should go. And advance tickets are now on sale. You need to go on Facebook and find Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob. And from there, there is a link to the event page from which you can order advance tickets. They are $25 in advance for the entire event or 30 at the door. So get advance tickets. The other thing that should be happening is we will be starting a Kickstarter very soon for the Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical. We had our first cast read-through of the script and checked out all the awesome music for the play that was written and orchestrated by Adam Ball, the very, very talented composer who is really the the brains behind the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical. And it was amazing, the experience of listening to the music 
and following along and reading the lyrics and reading the script. And I got to say, I'm, I'm very, very excited by this project. We are shooting for a debut of July 2016, where we will do a run of the Monster Phantom Like the Stage Musical for a week, ideally at the Mabel Tainter. It's a historic theater in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is not very far from the Twin Cities. So if you are from outside of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area or out of state and plan on coming from wherever it is you are to enjoy the musical, you could fly into the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport and from there take a car to Menominee, Wisconsin, which it's about just under an hour drive. So it's really not that hard to get to. And this theater is gorgeous. It is quite amazing and has a whole history behind it that we'd like to celebrate. Especially the ambiance alone of this place would be worth it to debut this amazing show in this great space. So the Kickstarter campaign has not quite kicked off yet. But following release of this podcast, it will very, very shortly thereafter. I will talk more about it next month with many more specifics on how you can become a part of that. And in the meantime, if you'd like information or would like to just simply know when the crowdfunding campaign officially begins, I'd say watch SaintEuphoria.com, watch the films of Christopher R. Mim on Facebook and on Twitter. The other thing I'd like to encourage you to do, and this one's free. Last year, in 2014, I started a, a new tradition of sending out a Mimiverse-themed holiday card that anyone could sign up to receive. This year, I am continuing that tradition. And if you would like to receive the 2015 Mimiverse holiday card, please go to SaintEuphoria.com and sign up. It should be right there on the main page. A little form, just give us your name and address, and you'll receive a card. So, before we go off to uh, Dr. Bob's joke from another universe, I want to read the most recent Amazon customer reviews of my film, The Giant Spider, because I realized that there is no middle ground when it comes to people's love and or hate of my films. And this is a perfect perfect example of what I'm talking about. The two most recent user reviews of The Giant Spider go like this. The first, most recent, gave it five stars. And their entire review is one sentence. And it goes like this. I laughed through the whole movie. And that was worth five stars. The one after that the, the second most recent, instead, and this is, again, demonstrating my point that people either love or hate my work, gave it one star, and the entire review is one word, and here it goes, sucked. You know, I'm going to read you the third most recent review as well, because I, I, hmm, I think the star count and the review itself are... They don't match because they give it one star. However, they titled their review, 
this movie is good for a laugh. But that's not where the weirdness happens. It happens here. They wrote, this movie is good for a laugh, or if you're in the mood, for something like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Well, to me, that's, that's a great compliment. I don't know that that's worthy of one star. But if you hate Plan 9 from Outer Space, or movies just like it, I guess it makes sense that you'd say it's one star. Anyway, so now we are going to listen to the good, bad joke from Dr. Bob Tesla. We hope he returns soon from his unintentional hiatus in an alternate universe. Regardless, thank you, Dr. Bob, wherever you are, for sending this great, bad joke in. When we come back, of course, we'll be reading Chapter 10 of the Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy Serial, written by Stephen D. Sullivan. Talk to you shortly. Take it away. Dr. Bob. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse Joke of the Month. With the holidays upon us, I thought it would be good to be a little more festive with my joke telling. So, what do you get if you divide the circumference of a pumpkin by its diameter? You get pumpkin pie. Make sure you come out December 12th to the Gateway Film Center for a mystery space movie. We don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a movie, and it's going to be in space. And also, don't forget that April 16th is the 24-hour Mimathon. Tickets are on sale now. Fantastic as usual. All right, let's jump right into Chapter 10 of the Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy ongoing serial with Incident at the Premiere, a.k.a. The Exhibit Party, written by Stephen D. Sullivan. Chapter 10. And it goes a little something like this. I've just finished one of the longest shifts in my career as a canoe cop, and you know what? I've got a funny feeling it's not over yet. You might say my long, long day started last night when the Talbot Waterfront Hotel collapsed into the lake. What a mess. An incident like that is enough to fill up anybody's work schedule. So that killed last night and most of today, too. Naturally, I happened to be the officer on duty when the disaster took place, because it seems like ever since the captain went on vacation, I'm the only canoe cop staffing the Phantom Lake HQ. Okay, that's not fair. Sorry. I didn't mean to grouse. I'm just tired is all. Sergeant Gustafson was actually there, too, finishing up some paperwork from the late afternoon shift, though why it took him so long, I can't imagine. Anyway, it does seem like most of the overtime and emergencies have fallen to me lately. I guess that's a hazard of being single, Lieutenant Patrick having a new baby and all. And the Talbot crashing into ruins definitely qualified as an emergency. So that's pretty much all I did from last night until 5 p.m. this evening. Emergency management along the shoreline, an obvious canoe cop responsibility. The work fell to me, Sergeant Gustav, and one of the night shift guys— I guess I could have called in Lars and Uli. They were on duty at the time, but after they bollocked up reporting the disaster, well, let's just say that I wasn't sure those two would do the job properly. Acting Chief Nicky Sheridan and the Sheriff's Department, on the other hand, did a fine job keeping away the landside rubberneckers. The water, of course, belongs to the canoe cops. Eventually, the scene was secured. The body, only one, thank goodness, got taken away and Nikki's crew had sorted through the wreckage. At that point, I could finally go home. 
The clock struck five as I reached my place, and I hadn't slept for going on thirty-six hours, so naturally I hit the sack. But for only an hour. If I didn't have a date tonight, I guess it's safe to call going to Corman's premiere party with Julie a date, even though he invited a lot of other people, too. Anyway, if not for that, there's no way I'd have gotten out of bed again. But how can a guy resist going anywhere with Miss Browning? Julie's the kind of girl that a dead man would climb out of this grave for, so Mama Agar's little boy wasn't about to let a tiny thing like lack of sleep get in his way. So this is how the date goes. I offered to pick up Julie at her place, but she says she's got some stuff to do in town, so it'll be easier just to meet at the docks where Corman and Hawass are throwing the shindig. She's packing some free tickets to the event, because the two of them want to display that jewel-encrusted necklace the Egyptian gave Julie a couple of days back. With a scant hour of sleep under my belt, I put on my best outfit and meet Julie at the docks next to the Lady Newbury, just before seven. Julie looks like a movie star, decked out in a long white dress that sparkles in the light of the paper lanterns hanging from the pier. The bauble around her neck sparkles too, all gold and green and red. I guess the ancient Egyptians knew how to make jewelry that looks good by firelight. Glad you can make it rich, Julie says, flashing me that million-dollar smile. I feel like a fish out of water when I take her arm, but I know nobody will be looking at me anyway. Together, we march up the gangplank onto the Lady Newbury. I have to admit, the refurbished showboat looks great. It's amazing what Corman has done with it in just a couple of days. Corman and Hawass, our hosts, meet us at the top of the gangplank. Both men beam at Julie. Miss Browning, how delightful to see you again, Hawass says, kissing her hand. Now that the star of the show is here, Corman says with a sly wink to my date, we can really get this party started. Julie blushes slightly as the two exhibitors lead us into their makeshift floating museum. I gotta admit that the inside of the boat looks even more posh than the outside. It's all done up like an Egyptian tomb with Hawass's artifacts, recovered by Julie from the bottom of the lake, scattered around the room in glass display cases. It seems like there's a lot more stuff here than could fit in one small truck, though. Like the way the place looks? Corman asks, noticing my roving eyes. I can hardly believe this boat was dry-docked yesterday, I reply. And where did all this other gear come from? He grins, the promoter who ate the canary. Hollywood magic, my boy. Of course, she'll look even better once we're out on the lake. Oh, are we going out tonight? Julie asks. Nah, we're staying tied up for the premiere, Corman replies. Still got a few kinks with the seaworthiness to work out. Don't worry, though. We'll get them solved in a day or two before we open the attraction for the general public. And speaking of attractions, he glances at Hawass. The Egyptian gives a little bow. Miss Browning, may I have the honor of placing the necklace in its proper resting place for the duration of the exhibit? Julie dips her head in assent, and Hawass reaches up and undoes the necklace from around her throat. The red and green gems set into the 24-karat gold sparkle brightly as the little Egyptian fastens the clasp around the neck of a dummy torso in a nearby display case. As Hawa sets the bauble into place, all the people around us applaud. Now it's my turn to go red in the face, as I hadn't noticed the crowd gathering as we moved through the exhibit. No way am I used to this kind of attention. I'm like a hayseed who's crashed a swank party on Chicago's Gold Coast. I feel only a bit better when I notice that Julie's blushing as well. I guess neither one of us is used to being at the center of the action. Hey, let's get you some food, and then I'll give you a guided tour. Corman offers after the applause has died down. 
Sounds great, Julie says. She looks like she's dying to get away from the spotlight. I would be delighted to, Hawass begins. Maybe later, Ardoth, Corman says, cutting him off. Right now I need you to mingle with the guests and explain all your doodads to the press and such. You know I'm still getting up to speed on the artifacts we're presenting. I'll get it eventually, don't you worry. And you can join us later for snacks, okay, buddy? He slaps the smaller man on the back. The Egyptian winces from the blow. He doesn't look very pleased, but he bows and heads toward the first display case, where some reporters are talking to the mayor. Corman smiles and watches him go. Once Hawass is out of earshot, the promoter turns back to Julie and me. I hope you don't mind me running him off like that, he says, but he's been bending my ear for the last day and a half about this stuff, making sure that all the replica tomb furnishings are put in just the right places, setting up the displays to his specifications and all that kind of stuff. If I had to listen to any more of it tonight, I'd just burst. No, I say, because, truth to tell, I'm glad Hawass is gone. I've tried to like the guy, but something about him just rubs me the wrong way, and I don't like the way he eyes Julie every time he gets near her. We don't mind at all. Julie shoots me a quick frown, a reminder that I should not be speaking for her without permission. She lets it go, though, and says, You've done a wonderful job here, Mr. Corman. Amazing, given the short time frame. Corman nods, pleased with his work. Not bad if I do say so myself. And Ardoth tells me that the setup, minus the glass cases, of course, is an exact replica of the tomb of Amunisis in Egypt. And minus the princess, naturally, her mummy is still in Minneapolis. He rubs his chin. Hmm, I wonder if that might change. Now that Zuko's dead, maybe we could borrow her for the summer. Julie looks slightly aghast. That's a bit cold, Mr. Corman. Oh, sorry, he says. You're right, of course. You can take the boy out of showbiz, but you can't take the showbiz out of the boy. Terrible tragedy, Zuko dying in the hotel and all. Lucky nobody else got hurt too badly. Yes, lucky, I agree. But at this point, I'm distracted by a couple of things I've noticed around the room. I point to an empty coffin standing near what looks like a stone altar. Is the missing mummy supposed to go in that sarcophagus? I ask. Yeah, Corman replies. Our missing guy, Rahotep was one of Amunisis' guards, as I understand it. I ordered a replica to replace him, but it hasn't arrived yet. Is it possible that Lars and Uli really saw a mummy last night? My tired brain wonders. Julie sighs. I'm so sorry that we couldn't locate that mummy, Mr. Corman. If you want, I could. He waves away her concern. No problem. We've got it covered. And remember, call me Bill. We're friends, after all. Hey, try some of this caviar. I had it shipped up special. He offers us both some crackers covered with black fish eggs. Never been a favorite of mine, but both Julie and I eat the goop politely. Your decorations really are wonderful, Julie says around a mouthful of cracker. Very authentic looking. So is the model wandering around in the scanty Egyptian outfit, I add. She was the other thing I noticed. Nice touch, though maybe a little risque for this crowd. Model? Corman asks. That sounds like a great idea, but... I have to admit, Rich, I didn't hire anyone... He looks around, trying to spot the girl. She's right over there, by the necklace case, I say, hooking my thumb in that direction. But when I turn and look, the girl's not there. At least, she was. Maybe she's somebody the papers brought up, Corman suggests. Some of those news guys will do anything to catch a good photo, or snap a pic of a pretty girl. He hands Julie and me each a glass of champagne. Drink up while I go check. I better make sure that Ardoth hasn't gotten in over his head, either. I'll catch you both later. Enjoy! And with that, the promoter is bustling through the crowd to where we'd last seen Hawass and the reporters. Alone at last, 
Julie says, clinking her glass against mine. Alone at last, I repeat softly, gazing into her baby blues. And that's all I care to report about my date this evening. Let's just say from that point on, Julie and I have a very good time, at least until I almost fall over from exhaustion. Champagne doesn't mix well with lack of sleep, apparently. In any case, she drives me home in her car, won't trust me behind the wheel of my own, too tired, she says, and then she heads to Anchor's boarding house for some well-deserved rest of her own. And here I sit, dear tape recorder, talking to you and sorting out my thoughts, because naturally now I cannot fall asleep, because there are a few things about this whole last day and a half that don't sit right with me, like, what's going on with this mummy business? And, was that Egyptian girl I spotted the one Gustav reported two days ago? And, dear tape recorder, did I actually just say that? (sighs) I really do need some sleep. Hang on, somebody's on the phone. I'll switch off now and try to figure out all the mysteries swirling around in my head later. Good night, I hope. And that's that. The end. Thank you again for listening to the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am, as always, your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim. And, as I always say before I sign off, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. Be well, have a happy holidays. I'll talk to you next month. (laughs) 